Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There was a time our happiness seemed never ending. I was so sure that where we were heading was right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Next Best Theater. I'm your host, Michael Schwartz, and this is part two of our Ragtime podcast. I'm joined in this episode by Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Dan Bayer. Hello. And Cody Derricks. So good to be back. Unfortunately, Beatrice cannot be on with us tonight, but we look forward to having her back on the show very, very soon as we do our next podcast review. But before we get back into Act 2 of Ragtime, how are you all doing tonight? I'm doing very well, but I know I'm not doing as well as Nicole. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm doing quite well because I believe I now have an apartment to move to in New York. So, yeah. yeah. As long as we can get the lease signing dealt with, we're good. <laughs> Super exciting. See, this is such a great reason to celebrate part two of Ragtime because we all have good news. And unfortunately, act one did not end so well for some of our characters. (laughs) So we are going to bring some joy back into the show, hopefully, through everyone's personal great news and all the great (laughs) stuff we have going on. We're going to infuse Ragtime. We're going to make Ragtime great again. (laughs) Ragtime is already Uh, great. It doesn't need our help. So, all right. Well, I'm glad everyone's back. And uh, just to fill in our listeners, for those of you wondering why this episode is a part two, this was not part of our original plan. We had intended to dedicate just one podcast to covering the plot and themes of Ragtime, along with some information regarding our relationship to this great musical. But that was not such the case the other day, because there was so much happening in Act One alone that we simply ran out of time to cover the rest of the show. So here we are again. We're going to pick up right at the start of Act Two. So if you have not listened to episode one already, please catch up because you are going to be very, very confused otherwise. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I don't think I'm even going to do a a previously on because it's there for everyone to hear. So what do you say? Should we just get into it now? Let's do act two. Let's do it. Okay. Act two of Ragtime. So as previously alluded to in uh, part one, act one of Ragtime is phenomenal. I don't think there's a single false note. And then in Act 2, there's some stuff that feels like it could have, should have been cut. And occasionally is cut. (laughs) Yeah, so it starts with, I'll read what we have here. In a dream sequence, the little boy, Edgar, watches Harry Houdini perform a daring escape act in which he's locked in a dynamite-laden box by Will Conklin. Will Conklin being the corrupt uh, volunteer firefighter. The box explodes, and although Houdini emerges smiling from the audience... The little boy wakes up screaming about his nightmare. He yells for mother, proclaiming that something bad is going to happen. He's proved correct when a volunteer firehouse is bombed and several, several firemen are killed. And the bomber of this firehouse is revealed to be Cole House. A lot going on right there, so let's try to break it down. Uh, yeah. In the transition from Act 1 to Act 2, I understand Cole House is 
upset about the death of Sarah and the injustice that he's facing. But do we think it's a little sudden for him to go from grieving to bombing fire stations? Um, I, I think a factor of his aspirations and dreams and vision of America being so high in Act 1 with uh, Wheels of a Dream, um, with seemingly everything coming together so well for him, especially as a black man in early 20th century America, to have it be suddenly ripped away from him, not only with his car and then the injustice of not being able to get his car fixed and then Sarah being murdered at the feet of the vice president. I think that's a lot for one person to kind of wrestle with in regards to their view of the country. So you think it's natural that he just goes this violent this quick and doesn't just progress? I don't know if it's natural, um, but I do think a uh, sudden escalation isn't surprising. I also think that if we think about who Colthouse is as a character, he goes from, you know, being so, I guess, perhaps wishy-washy or something with Sarah that she thinks that, you know, she shouldn't even tell him that they have a son to being so obsessive that he's rolling up at, you know, the house in New Rochelle every, what is it, every Sunday? Um... So I feel like we've seen Klaus before kind of do this zero to to 180. True. Pretty fast. Um, so to me, I think maybe what makes it feel like maybe it doesn't work perfectly is that you don't see it from his perspective at first. Because I think if we were seeing it immediately, you know, from the Kohlhaas soliloquy that comes later, it does make sense. But it's that we're seeing it first from the point of view of the family. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, and in the uh, recent revival, that whole opening of Act Two was cut. Yes, and I saw that revival. I think that's very smart. It opens with just Colehouse sitting on stage, and it goes right into um, Colehouse's soliloquy. Yeah, and I think that it's a more logical through line from the end of Act One to the start of Act Two to do it that way. Um, I understand mm-hmm. the. I, I understand what the dream sequence is there for and what it's doing, but I don't think that it fits in as well with the whole story. And it makes Kohlhaas seem like, oh, he's just one of those really passionate artist types and can only feel things, you know, at the, at the like, 150% for everything. Is it only me who feels that there's some irony in the fact that the people who gave us, like, clairvoyant little boy... Mm are also the same people who took Rasputin from us in Anastasia. <laughs> like, you know what I mean, though? It's like... Right. A certain degree of magical realism is too much for one show, but right, we need tons of it in, in, in another. Yeah, in another <laughs> arguably more serious show. I don't know. I do feel like there's some something funny there. That maybe they felt that this was a mistake, and that's why they were eager to cut anything like it from Anastasia later. Right, because the clairvoyancy doesn't further the plot in any way at any point it is merely kind of just a interesting character trait yeah it only exists to give something for harry houdini to do and And yeah (laughs) it's the only thing that's not grounded in complete reality in the entire show a show that features historical figures who actually existed yeah and that goes back to what we were saying the other day with these uh historical figures in the show you know some of them like emma goldman and evelyn nesbitt get these big scenes harry houdini doesn't really get the scenes but he's just a talking point it seems like 
he seems to be the one who doesn't really further anything truly because obviously like Emma Goldman and Henry Ford and JP Morgan and most of the people have some sort of, I guess like narrative usefulness, um, which is not the best way of saying that, but (laughs) it feels like Harry Houdini keeps getting inserted in. And if this wasn't like the top of the act, I'd almost be like, Oh, is this here because they need a costume change to happen? Like, you know what I yeah. mean? It, 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 Houdini is there basically to serve as, like, an avatar of the immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. He is an immigrant who came here and became successful doing these things. Um, so I understand the desire to have him in the, sh- in the show. But other than, again, like, this, this dream being, like, a, you know, metaphor for the immigrant experience, you know, people are going to try to blow it up and they're just going to show up in the middle of the crowd it it doesn't it's not necessary i wish that instead he had been like the one to buy the original you know what is it movie book from yes uh tata and that could have been the use because that would have been a bit you know yeah i don't know it would have felt like it fit better right and it's not like that conductor who buys it is doing anything with it later in the show right exactly never see him again yeah that's a very good point (laughs) We actually and don't because, see Tata for a lot of Act 2, so... Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, Cole House is going on this rampage, bombing volunteer firehouses, and he's even, like, terrorizing New Rochelle, killing some of the firemen. Like, he's really going on a rampage here. Yeah. And what he demands is that his car be restored and returned to him, and that Will Conklin be delivered into his hands. So, as all this is happening, Booker T. Washington condemns Cole House and his actions and all the young men who are angry and sitting behind Cole House you know tensions are obviously very high here and Booker T. Washington wants it to stop as that's all happening the family from New Rochelle is at the middle of a scandal because mother still has custody of Sarah and Cole House's baby people know that it's Cole House's son and they're thinking what is this wealthy white woman doing with the son of this what they think to be maniac mm-hmm so, mm. you know, things are not all hunky-dory for them at the moment. <laughs> Father blames her for bringing all this turmoil into their lives, and younger brother is furious for, you know, being blind to what's happening. We've seen that he's like a bit of a social justice warrior now. Right. So <laughs> he storms out of the house. Mother is frustrated by her husband, encourages him to explain to Edgar what's happening. Because I feel like Edgar is just too busy having these dreams that he doesn't know what's really happening around him. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Edgar, focus, honey. Y- yes, Edgar really needs to get with the game here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and speaking of game, <laughs> uh, Father decides, rather than explain what's going on, uh, he says, you know what? I'm going to get my son's mind off of all this nonsense around us and all the scandal. <laughs> I'm going to take him to a baseball game. <laughs> the great American pastime. <laughs> it was like they couldn't have a show about you know, early 20th century New York without featuring a baseball <laughs> game. And it might be added a little, a little clunky the way that it's added here, but... I actually prefer... Not that I think it's a great song, and it is one of my least favorite of the show, but I think that this baseball song is better than the Dear Evan Hansen baseball song. That I will agree with. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> that's, totally. The, that's the skipper of Dear Evan Hansen. Honestly. Whereas this, like, yes, I do skip it sometimes, but also... Sometimes, whenever you're in the right mood for it, it does crack me up. Like especially when the father just keeps getting angry and angry that like Edgar's repeating the language that he's hearing. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is he goes to the games, and father thinks it's like, oh, in the good old days, it's going to be like classy and uh, gameplay with respect. And he just sees rowdy crowds of immigrants who are 
not what he is used to and just drunks and he's just not happy to be there. Right. And the song seems to only exist to seemingly be like, oh boy, these loud immigrants. I don't know. I don't really know its purpose in the plot. <laughs> I mean, there probably isn't one. It's kind of well, just Well, it's to show that, one. that f- how father sees the world changing around him and how right. irrespective of his wants or desires, the world is moving forward. Right. I also feel like it's just to like grind home in case we didn't already know that the father's a stick in the mud. Like, yeah. He can't even enjoy the baseball game, um, which I say this as someone who like, you know, pieced out of the Yankees game halfway through the one time I've been to a baseball game. But like, you know, I feel like it. the one thing that it does show you is that father is so out of touch with the rest of the family at this point, even though he's yes. back and, you know, he's physically there. That like he's there's no one in this family that he's getting along with anymore. <laughs> Yeah, so he probably just should have stayed at the North Pole and avoided all of this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of the thing, right? It's showing how he's dealing with the change in the world. Mm-hmm. And the answer is not well. Yeah, the, <laughs> uh, as can usually be said of middle-aged white men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll apologize on our behalf. <laughs> okay, so we had the song What a Game, which I guess, you know, we mentioned that in the Dear Evan Hansen song. So when you're ranking baseball on Broadway, it probably goes... Dear Evan Hansen, Ragtime, Take Me Out, and then Damn Yankees. I think that's yeah. the correct order. Um, no, no, you're, you're missing um, the baseball song from Falsettos, which is much better yeah, than oh, this oh, one. Oh, oh. that's like the that? flip side of this song. We're sitting <laughs> and watching Jason play baseball. We're watching Jewish boys who cannot play baseball play yeah. baseball. <laughs> I love that song so much. That was amazing. That was How did I forget the Falsettos? Oh, my goodness. All right, this is what happens when you record late. <laughs> All right, so we have this drunken baseball game where father is not a happy camper and doesn't exactly work to get his son's mind off of what's happening. Yeah. So his efforts are not enough to keep at bay the effects of Cole House's demands and acts of violence. As the outside world bears down on the family, father decides to move them to Atlantic City. <laughs> Can I just say, this is a minor <laughs> song in the show. I love Atlantic City. I love it's it so much. Yeah, me too. In the, <laughs> the song Atlantic City here, I think it's really, really catchy. I mean, no one is going to be surprised that I love Atlantic City because we see Evelyn Nesbitt come back. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is not one of the great songs from Ragtime, but it's just one that sticks with me for whatever reason. Does anyone else have that aside from you, Nicole, with the Evelyn Nesbitt thing? <laughs> it, no, it's a good melody. It's a catchy yeah. song. I, I love the chorus work here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it just feels like you're going into this world of, what well, I guess in, in a 20th century, not going to be the same glitz and glamour, but <laughs> the glitz and glamour that was in the early 1900s, whatever did exist then. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jersey's still great. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> But d- come on, Ad- Atlantic City has gone downhill a ways since back then. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Living just a short car ride from New Jersey, there are parts that are great. Atlantic City is not exactly one of them. I've never been, so I can't say. <laughs> I don't know why I'm defending it. Uh, I'll say to our <laughs> listeners, take, take a ride to Margate instead. It's right over the, <laughs> the boardwalk. Atlantic City, not your friend. (laughs) Not really. So they move to Atlantic City, and upon their arrival, the family encounters a film crew taking shots of the boardwalk, directed by Tata. Mm -hmm. That was my big reveal. (laughs) (laughs) So now Ragtime is turning into Crash, where there are all these stories that are becoming 
intertwined by the end. It's it's better than Crash. I was gonna say, oh boy, yeah. Like, it's not <laughs> Crash. I was like, oh, Careful. come on, Michael, come on. <laughs> so everyone is crossing paths here. Tata is making films in Atlantic City, and he has reinvented himself as the Baron. A pioneering director who produces moving pictures. <laughs> the Baron Ashkenazi. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, Very I, important. I, I forgot. Uh, I'm just not on the ball tonight. The Baron Ashkenazi, <laughs> yes. Which, uh, there's a, the listener is not familiar with Ashkenazi. That's like Eastern European Jew. My family recently found out we have um, genetics in Ashkenazi Jews. Really? Well, there you go. Welcome to the tribe. Mm. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, so the Baron Ashkenazi, a pioneering director and producer of moving pictures. And, you know, just like Cole House has this, I guess you could say, decline from, you know, upstanding guy to now causing mayhem in New Rochelle, that's a big change for him. And here you have uh, Tata, who goes from immigrants selling books on a train and almost losing his daughter in a riot to now directing films in New Jersey. So... How do we feel about this transition? Same way as the Cole House, where it's, you know, a bit of a leap, or do we feel it's a natural progression for him? How much time do we think has passed since we've last seen Tata? I mean, I'm sure in the book this is explained further, but it seems pretty pretty sudden. Yeah, the pretty fact quick. That he could just get yeah. down there and start a reputation with cameras, and, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be at least a few months. You know, it's not going to be a year, but... I mean, back then, before there was a studio system, though, it was kind of just anybody with a camera can make money if they want to. Yeah. Right, but how does this poor immigrant get his hands on a camera? Yeah, it does, right, it right, does yeah. happen a bit fast. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we're glad for his success. You know, he says a whole song about it in there. He, he's, a, he's a Baron Ashkenazi, so good for him. And while he's there, uh, as Nicole alluded to before, so is <laughs> Evelyn Nesbitt. It's like all the characters from Act 1 just decided, oh, let's all go to the <laughs> on vacation. Let's come in for this one scene. <laughs> let's go to Atlantic City for whatever reason. And her career is in a downward spiral. You know, she's not doing too well. She's not uh, doing crime of the century anymore. I guess she's just sort of uh, waiting for the Trump Casino to open and she's going to get her. <laughs> oh. Yikes. Yikes. Too soon. Nice to Evelyn. Uh, We have our friend Harry Houdini. (laughs) Tony, everyone is Is he our friend? (laughs) (laughs) Harry Houdini suffered a loss. His beloved mother passed away. And Mm -hmm. he is deciding to delve into the supernatural. And as part of delving into the supernatural, he encounters Edgar on the street. And Edgar just randomly goes up to him and shouts, Warn the Duke before running off. We're starting to see why this was cut for the revival. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Warn the Duke. I don't even it. remember this part when I saw the revival, Warn so the Duke. I'm pretty sure it's been excised. It's so yeah. silly. It to, they're cutting the Edgar supernatural stuff. This has to go too. It's got to go. So, Warn the Duke, which you hear on the album, he's like shouting it. <laughs> so, I guess he screams and then he runs over and bumps <laughs> into uh, Tata's little girl. And the two of them become friends. I'm telling you, things in Linux City just seem to happen so fast. <laughs> People come and go so quickly here. Celebrities, your career to go in a down spiral. There's just so much is happening. This, <laughs> you know, series of maybe three songs that take place there. So as Tata and uh, Mother start talking because their children are bonding, they realize that their lives aren't so different because they're parents, and that's the one thing that really brings them together. And shows that whether or not you're, or whether you're an immigrant from Eastern Europe, or a housewife from New Rochelle, you know, 
the fact that your parent is something that could bridge that divide. And they sing this really beautiful song, yeah. Our Children. Which I love this song. So nice. We see the moment between them at the train station earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they sort of you know, know each other a little bit better now. They might not even remember who they are. Well, at first, he's still pretending he's the Baron, and she doesn't recognize him. Yeah. And then halfway through the song, he reveals himself as to not being a Baron. Right, right. <laughs> and even in that moment, though, I'm not sure that she really remembers, oh, this is a man I met at the right. train station months ago. <laughs> yeah, no, she, she wouldn't. She sees him as maybe another immigrant. And Edgar at the train station had said something about, uh, these people are going to be important to us later. Yeah, we're going to know them. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Edgar. A little bit of foreshadowing. A little clunky. Edgar is just up to no good this whole show. <laughs> I have to say, the first time I saw the show, it was maybe around this, and I was like, I don't know if this is bad, because like, I know the father exists, but I ship it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> That's what the show wants you, you to would. say. Yeah. <laughs> I was fully on board. <laughs> little did you know. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Oh, so they sing that song, Our Children, which is just, it's a lovely song. Yeah. You know, we talked about the late great Marin Maisie last week and oh. how wonderful she was. But just another opportunity for her voice and, of course, Peter Friedman, the two of them together, just such great chemistry. And you buy them as these characters. It's not just like actors singing as an immigrant or a rich woman from New mm-hmm. Rochelle. They just feel like they are these people by this point. And there's a great ham for him of this as well. <laughs> oh, there is? Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. We have to go look that up. Is oh, it on YouTube? I think it's of this one. I uh, I think it, I mean, they're all on YouTube, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to find it. All right, well, we have to go look at that. That, that yeah. is worth, listeners, you know, pause the podcast. We're giving you permission to pause here. Go to YouTube, look <laughs> it up, and report back. And Tell we us. will have to do the same when we're done this recording. I think it's this one. I know they did a ragtime ham for him. All right, whatever gotcha. it is. I mean, we're going through all the beats here, so yeah. there is bound to be something from Ragtime. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, there should be, because Hamilton and Ragtime have their parallels. Mm-hmm. So that's Atlantic City and all the things going on there. It ends with Our Children, as we said. It's just such a great song. Then we cut back to Harlem. And younger brother is taking on a bigger role in the show now. He decides to seek out Cole House, but is repeatedly turned away by Cole House's men. They decide that he can't be trusted, and they're convinced that he's not part of the cause that they have where they're fighting for social justice. And, you know, that makes sense. Like, if you're so determined to take down the quote-unquote white establishment, why would you want this white guy, even though he's an ally, to be with you in the fight if they're not 100% sure who he is? Yes, it's a a suspicious entrance. You don't know if he's there with the cops or what. Um, Also, but right before they this happens, there's a quick song called Sarah Brown Eyes. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, Sarah Brown Eyes. Uh, yes. That is when Cole House is in the room of the place in Harlem, and, you know, he's watching a couple dance, and it reminds him of his relationship with Sarah. And this is where Audra McDonald, Sarah, comes back on stage after she has Thank died. God. So it's like a flashback or a ghost, some figment of Cole House's imagination. And, you know, they have one last moment together, which is really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yet again, Brian Stokes Mitchell and that voice just, <sighs> oh, God. <laughs> they sound amazing. I think the song is just kind of okay. And uh, yeah. the cre- the composers later basically admitted they wrote the song to get Audra McDonald back on stage in Act 2. I, I do always think, you know, she could have had a nice long nap. I don't blame them. 
I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> I, I don't think there are any other lyrics to the song other than Sarah Brown Eyes. They just keep repeating it. Yep. Pretty and much. I think, uh, you know, Audrey McDonald might have a few other lyrics here, but it's pretty much those are the just ones that we remember. Yeah. And it's really interesting that she stuck around for Act Two because there was no reason that she had to be there aside from the curtain call. Yeah. True. It's a real Fantine situation. Yeah, yeah so, honestly. That's right. Yeah, I am. You know, Fantine doesn't come back for any other song in Act Two aside from the finale, so mm-hmm. you know, maybe you know, Victor Hugo, what were you thinking there? Although I believe actually <laughs> typically Fantine plays some ensemble roles in Act Two. She plays uh she plays one role called the Bullet Boy yep. in Act Two. And that was only put there because Patty LuPone was bored backstage in London and needed something to do. I mean, that yep. sounds like Patty. <laughs> My favorite bit of trivia about Les Mis. She kept, yeah, she kept threatening to go to the pub across the street. So they're like, hey, we'll give you something to do there next too. There is a really nice pub across the street, so I don't blame her. <laughs> you know what, what Audrey McDonald could have done is what Cynthia Nixon did years ago, which oh is where God. she was in two shows at the same time. She was in Act 1 of one show and then Act 2 of the other. And she would just <laughs> run across the street during intermission. Oh my god, that's insane. Yes, both David Ives shows, I believe. Wow. That alone is reason she was um, worthy to be the governor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? If that doesn't show that she's a fighter, I don't know what will. Honestly. <laughs> she's yeah. dedicated. I think she was also 17 when that was happening. Whatever. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> All right. Sarah Brown Eyes. We have uh, Sarah back on stage and a great moment between them. And then once her vision starts to fade away, younger brother is allowed in to talk to Cole House, but he can't exactly articulate why he wants to join the fight and be a part of this. And as he's trying to get these thoughts out of his mouth and talk to Cole House, we have Emma Goldman come on stage and sort of narrate this conversation and what he wants to say. And of course the song is called He Wanted to Say. This song (laughs) is a big mood. (laughs) Now this is really interesting and it's an artistic you know, gutsy move here to have the scene where she's speaking for two characters that she really has no association with because before everything she had to do was with Tata. So what do we think of the decision to add Emma Goldman to this particular scene? This is actually one of my favorite scenes in the whole show Um, because I do like that Emma Goldman was kind of, you know, central in turning younger brother from his obsession with Evelyn Nesbitt and his kind of, you know, waywardness let's say to this kind of social justice kick that he's now on exactly they do have that encounter i mentioned tata but younger brother does see her speak uh at the night Mm -hmm. that goldman spoke at union square and i think that this is a nice way to kind of follow through on that relationship there or that you know emma goldman has sparked something in him and so now whereas she kind of gave him his voice earlier on in terms of what he's, you know, wants to do. Now she's literally voicing what he's trying to say. And I think that, I mean, I feel like we've all been in that situation where we go in and we have something that we need to say to someone and you end up saying something really dumb instead. <laughs> um, and I feel like this is a really nice thing because you have this really poignant song with these beautiful lyrics. And then, you know, the kicker at the end when he's like, I know how to blow things up. Yeah. Um, which is, it's it's a big mood, really. Like, I'd like Emma Goldman to come do my job interviews for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think it's interest, it, a really interesting choice artistically to have, mm-hmm. you know, someone come on and basically sing, well, this is what they wanted to say to the other, especially since it's two people who are from very, very different walks of life and have very different experiences. Well, it's kind of, um, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's the that's the thing that stands out to me most about this song. It's kind of dr- dramatizing something that is tricky in adaptations from novels, which is a lot of novels, if they're in the third person, you know, have moments where they peek inside the characters' heads. Yeah. And that's not as easy to do in musicals unless you go, I'm thinking this. And that's, you know, not always appropriate. Yeah. So to give Emma Goldman that kind of narrator standpoint, the author uh, viewpoint is really interesting. I think it works much better than if he was standing there going, I wanted to say. Um, True. Instead to have her saying he wanted to say. Like, I think that that works nicely. And again... We see Emma, Col- Emma Goldman, wow, actually being used in the show, um, mm-hmm. which is nice. You know, it gives her something else really to be doing that makes sense for her to be doing. Yeah, that, that's the big thing, being used in a way that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, when the song starts, you know, it just starts with her going, he wanted to say, and then one of the characters says a line of dialogue. But then the moment where it goes from okay to great is when she cuts to like, Singing two men meeting. Oh my god, and her yes. Voice changes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a really, Chills. really fantastic moment. If they ever do a ragtime movie, I mean, I know there has been a ragtime movie adapted from the book, but if there's a movie musical adaptation, I would love to see Emma Goldman played by a big Hollywood actress, like some huge star who's usually in leading roles, just taking a small supporting role here and making it their own because it is a big character. And Meryl Streep. I was just about to say <laughs> Meryl. Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like perfect it. Meryl Streep material. There, we put it out there, Michael, so you didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> and she's listening, of course. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hi, Meryl. I mean, Meryl, <laughs> make the Ragtime the Musical movie happen. There's a perfect part for you. An Oscar-winning <laughs> part in another movie. As a musical. She did <laughs> Mamma Mia this year, and she has Mary Poppins later. Like, she could just show up for two or three scenes and yeah. be there for all the yeah, week. please. Totally. I'm telling you, this has to happen. <laughs> By the way, I'm, we're not going to have time to talk in full detail about ragtime film casting, but my inspired choice for Father, I don't know why I have Father and Emma Goldman as the only characters <laughs> cast, but Father, call me crazy, Steve Carell. Oh. Okay. All right, Can all right. he sing? Stoic Steve Carell. Well, I don't know if he could sing or not, but I just sort of see <laughs> I him. I guess the when, father doesn't sing that much, anyways. I think he has the two ships passing in the yeah. beginning. But I just picture like Stoic Steve Carell, like on that poster for the movie Last Flag Flying. <laughs> yeah, oh God! Like, sad and just like sad, lonely Lost. guy. <laughs> not the office Steve Carell, but just sad Steve yeah. Carell's father. That's what I'm thinking. I don't have any movie casting, but I will say real quick because we're about to talk about Cole House some more. That uh, my like next revival dream casting is Kyle Scatliff as Cole House Walker Jr. Because um, I saw him in The Color Purple. I saw him as Andras and Les Mis. And I actually have talked to him on Twitter about this. And he's like, that is one of my dream roles. So I want Joshua Henry. <laughs> See, I would accept him too, of course. I feel like there's a lot of guys. But if, if we're not getting one for a few more years, I feel like Kyle Scatliff would be a really good Really good choice. All right, I'm just going to add one more. Leslie okay. Odom Jr. I mean... In a few years. I see it, well, maybe. Well, yeah, we're waiting a few years. Yeah. Doesn't have to start tomorrow. <laughs> he strikes me more as a um, Booker T. Washington. Exactly yeah, my actually, thought. Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. All right, Hollywood executives, take note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has to happen. We're ready. Uh, you know what? Start thinking ahead, because we're going to come to a song very soon that involves Mother. And then, as we're talking about that, we'll think of someone from Mother 2. I've got someone already. Great. I'm oh, ready. we have ideas. <laughs> I have two, two good ideas, so get ready for it. Think quick, because it's coming very soon. Uh, he wanted to say, great song, we love Emma Goldman. 
Kohlhaas and his men, including younger brother, take over J.P. Morgan's magnificent library in the heart of New York City and threaten to blow it up. Father informs mother that he's been summoned to New York to help reason with Kohlhaas. They're still in Atlantic City at this point, so he's just taking the train back up, I suppose. (laughs) Before he goes, he assures her that everything will soon return to the way that it was. However, mother has changed too much to allow that to happen. She knows that things are, here we go, never going to go. Back to before. Back to before. But ouch. My, my like second or third favorite song on the whole show. Yeah. After Wheels of a Dream. <laughs> when we were talking about Marin Maisie the other day mm. and her greatness, I know I was saying how great a voice she had, what kind of woman and our children. This is the definitive Marin Maisie song in Ragtime. Oh yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's such a beautiful, beautiful song. Perfectly suited for her uh, voice. I love it. Just and the lyrics too. Every word you just—it's telling you a story, the story that you've seen play out for the last two hours or so. But hearing her sing about the position she's in and how she had this life before, it's never going to be the same. And maybe that's a good thing that it's never going to be the same. Just absolutely magnificent. I am not going to lie. Whenever I listened to this uh, last week to prepare for. Uh, recording this, I cried on an airplane listening to this song. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, tears. Especially since Marin passed away. Yep. But yep, tears, tears, tears. Even when she was still alive, when I would think of Marin Macy's name, this was the song that would come to mind. It's this song, yeah. It, it's just all her. You, you hear other people performing it, including in the revival. Uh, oh my God, who played Mother in the revival? Christiane Knoll. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, she was absolutely fantastic on the album and. She has a great rendition, too. I mean, it's going to be a great song no matter who sings it. But, I mean, Marin Maisie is the one who originated it and is the one who's going to have the legacy from it. Yeah. Now, are we ready to talk about, like, Mother Dreamcasting, then? Is that what we're... (laughs) As we have this impromptu game, let's talk about Mother Dreamcasting. I'll go last because mine's sort of crazy, but I'm going to see what you all think. All right, I'll start. I've got two. The first one is kind of a cheat, but it's Laura Michelle Kelly who played it at the concert that they did at Ellis Island. Love her. I adore her. I saw her a couple of times in Finding Neverland. She's such a talent. And I think, I mean, obviously, everyone who saw that concert said that she was phenomenal. So I'd love to see her get to do, like, a proper run of this show. And then my other one is, I feel like for anyone, you know, who knows me, not a surprise. And it's another Laura, and it's Laura Osnes. Yeah. um, Mm. Who I feel like would be a pretty, you know, she'd be a shoe-in for a they renounced a revival of this, people would be like, oh, will it be Laura Osnes? Because I feel like she is one of those kind of iconic Broadway leading ladies of the right age group for this role. I think in a few years, yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, by the time, you know, a revival's not going to come up tomorrow because we would have heard about it by now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also had two ideas okay. um, for this one. Um, one is if they went a little more Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And that is Emily Blunt. Yes. Because she is always wonderful, and she has a lovely singing voice. And my other one is a little bit more out there, only because I don't know if she's ever done any movie stuff. Okay. But um, I think the voice is perfect for this song, and that's Stephanie J. Block. Oh, oh that is a really I love voice. her. I like that a lot. I know, right? No offense to it, but get her out of the share show and into Ragtime. Yes. (laughs) Better than my pick. Oh, my God. 
All right, Cody. Good, good, good luck topping that one. I don't have one. That's the best one. <laughs> Yay, I win. Congratulations, Daniel. All right, then I'm going to say mine because I was thinking this, you know, a month ago when I was listening I'm to the right kind of album. If they were to do a movie, who would play her? And in 1998, Maron Maisie lost the Tony to the woman who was playing Sally Bowles in Cabaret. That was the late, great Natasha Richardson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thinking of uh, other people to do it, I realized that my choice also played Sally Bowles. So if they were ever to do a ragtime movie, my inspired choice here is Michelle Williams. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm intrigued. Who, she has a quieter voice, so it's mm-hmm. not going to be this loud performance like you would get from Stephanie J. Block or even Marin Maisie, who gives a very forceful performance. But having seen Michelle Williams in Cabaret, I know she's up to it with the singing. Does she have that high soprano yeah. register? It goes pretty high. Yeah, not 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 exactly. No, I know Sally Bowles is supposed to be a bad singer, and that's sort of the purpose of that performance. But hearing Michelle Williams sing in other places, not counting The Greatest Showman, because that's all you know, all they sing. <laughs> that's a robot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Unfortunately, I think with the right training and. The technique, I, I think there's a world where she could pull it off. I wouldn't be mad about it. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be mad about it either, except that it should have been, um, you know, Emily Blunt, clearly, but... <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, again, Hollywood, hope you're listening. <laughs> so, back to before, which is probably one of the top, as Dan said, three songs of the show. Mm-hmm. And just tell us everything about where that character is. You know, she came such a far away from... You know, scared and alone when her husband's gone to now sort of controlling the way things are and knowing that it's never going to be the same, but coming to terms with the fact that that's okay. So just absolutely magnificent. Back in New York, father arrives at the tents, uh, police situation around the library and suggests that Cole House should listen to Booker T. Washington because Booker T. Washington is there to sort of, again, help calm things down, restore some order and get african-americans back to where he thinks they should be if they want true equality cole house allows booker d washington to enter the library but remains unreachable until booker d washington mentions the legacy that cole house is leaving for his son and that's the thing that really gets to him it doesn't matter what's going to happen with all these other people and the harm that he's causing when booker t washington makes it personal about the future of cole house's son you know has no mother and it's just him to teach him good from bad, that's what sort of changes his mind a bit. Especially because he's left his son in the care of white people. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And he mentions that, how um, almost hypocritical it is to preach what you're preaching, but then let your children be raised by white people, essentially. Yeah. You know, there's very little he has left in life at this point because, you know, his love is gone, his car is destroyed, his pride along with that. But the son... Who he, again, who he's not even with, is the one thing that sort of keeps him going, and he just has to be reminded of that. So having that conversation, Cole House and Washington work out a deal for a peaceful surrender, but younger brother, who, you know, is trying to do good, but is causing a little bit of trouble, <laughs> is enraged by Cole House's abandonment of the cause and doesn't want to have him let things go. Washington leaves, and Father enters the library as a hostage. Now, what do we think about him finally coming to terms with the way things are? And, you know, after spending so much of Act 2 trying to stay away from all this drama, really becoming a part of it as a hostage? I, I think it's an, it's an interesting 
gesture on his part. Is it that so much was pressing on him that he felt the need to do it, or he felt well, that it was also it's the personal only way now? Out? Now that he's yeah. Yeah. involved, yeah. He even if he's the son, I don't. I'm not quite sure how old the son is, but he's young enough that he's still in the charge of the father. Mm-hmm. So I think there was, if nothing else, pressure from outside forces to take reins over your son. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know he has been so forcefully trained to ignore all these changes but then finally like the change comes to him yeah and says you know you know this affects you this affects you and it affects you and yours so you got to do something and i think it's i think it's very hopeful that he sort of steps up to the plate you know? It's very symbolic. Maybe he was um, inspired by uh, Mother's song back to before. I mean, <laughs> she's she's yeah, not on truly. She's listening. not only she's not only kind of saying we can't you know go back personally to how we were before, but also it's explaining that the world is changing and we need to mm-hmm. accept that and move with it. And I mean, with such a beautiful song, how could you not listen? Yeah. <laughs> so he goes in, and this is the point where Cole House convinces younger brother and his men that violence is not going to solve injustice. And he charges them all to change society through the power of their words and telling their children their story, like having the children learn where their parents came from and what they fought for. And this is when Cole House sings Make Them Hear You. <laughs> this is my absolute favorite song in the show. It's a by, great song. By far, actually. I think it's, I think it's astounding. This ought to be the anthem for all the protests that we're seeing today from, like, the March for Our Lives or the Women's yeah. March or whatever mm-hmm. it is. This ought to be like the song they're playing at rallies and protests. I remember after the uh, most recent presidential election, right. this mm-hmm. song was bandied about a lot, and rightfully so. I remember, I mean, I, it, it was a solid like six months before I could hear this song and not mm. have a, a, a mini breakdown. Um, <laughs> just because I think that it, it is the kind of song that speaks to any kind of movement that's happening and it doesn't really matter what the movement's about as long as it has something to do with injustice i think it can speak to a lot of people even outside the context of the show which i think is part of its power right you don't even need to know what cole house is singing about Mm -hmm. yet you understand everything that he's singing about yeah and i think it's so impressive as a way to end the show i mean it's Mm -hmm. essentially the last number in the show before the epilogue finale Mm -hmm. and it would be so so easy for the writers to kind of write off everything cole house is doing as just angry terrorism unfounded Mm -hmm. and unjust and has no um place in this world but they give him a song that's triumphant and positive and it's not necessarily saying what he did was right but everybody has a voice and everybody has a right to speak their mind i think that's so incredible and i think it's great that they give him this song as opposed to booker t washington like even though Mm -hmm. booker t washington is like basically giving cole house this lesson it's important that cole house is the one that gives it to his his followers and to the audience. Yeah. You know, because it's, it, this is his, it's sort of his redemption for the terrible things he's done. He's like, I, I get that. I get what I've done is terrible. This is why we need to change. You're seeing three forms of change in act two. Yeah. One from mother, one from father, and then from one from Cole house. And they, 
two of them get a song about it. Father doesn't sing about his change because <laughs> he's going in as a hostage. There's not much to sing about there. <laughs> but with uh, Make Them Hear You, it's just, again, one of those great, great songs from this show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though there are a few parts in Act 2 that we were saying don't exactly come together the way that they should, the great thing about Ragtime is, as we said the other day, the whole is better than the individual parts. Except for this one. <laughs> <laughs> this individual part's pretty this great. This is one of those individual parts yeah. where it's like, this is why this is such an amazing show. And it's an anthem like this that just really captures all the themes and everything the show is trying to say. So after he sings that, the men believe, or begin to exit the library. Younger brother and the gang leave first. And father tells Colehouse about his son's status, how he's with the family. Colehouse is relieved to hear this. He begins to walk out of the library, thanking father for his kindness. And as he leaves, he is shot and killed by the police. Because the world has not changed in a hundred mm. years. So yeah. Colehouse and Sarah are both killed, you know, seeking justice. And that's what eventually does them in. You know, we sort of talked about this the other day with Sarah's death. There's not much more to say that's different here other than hundred and some years later and we're still dealing with the same old. I think it's important too, if you look at the structure of the story, I guess, because we were talking about the fact that, you know, it is kind of a hopeful moment before Sarah's death and you kind of have this up and down of hope and despair. And I feel like that's also what we see here. We have this almost triumphant, make them hear you. Which is this, you know, hey, we can take this bad thing and use it, you know, to, to push for something good. And then we're immediately set back again. It's also, it Make Them Hear You also kind of seems like the knowing last monologue of somebody who knows he's about to die. Yeah. Even though he's been told, no, you'll get a fair trial. We'll let you leave here in peace. He's smart enough you're gonna to be know arrested. what's going to happen. He, yeah. I, he has to know at this point. He's been, you know, he's seen the, the tainted true form of America. And the song ends with, um, when, they hear, when, when they hear you, I'll be near you again, which is basically saying, I'm not going to be there to actually yeah. hear what you're saying in person. But trust me, I am listening. I am there and I... I, I understand you. Right. So he's killed. And, you know, that's basically the end of the show until we get to the epilogue, which <laughs> wraps up all those little loose ends. Mm-hmm. So Edgar comes on stage and tells us that the era of ragtime is over. And he takes on the task of fulfilling Colehouse's wishes that everyone's story be told. The company returns to tell us the conclusion of each of their own individual stories, starting with younger brother who departs from Mexico to fight along Emil- Emiliano Zapata. <laughs> because of course he does. <laughs> yes. You know, he gets one little taste of social justice and goes international with it. So we don't know what happens to him. After that, I get the sense that it's not going to work out super well for younger <laughs> brother if he keeps putting himself in these situations. <laughs> he knows how to make stuff blow up. At least he's trying. Yeah. So there we go. Emma Goldman is arrested and deported. Mm-hmm. And that's that. <laughs> yes. Booker T. Washington establishes the Tuskegee Institute and, you know, has the president and the first lady attend his funeral. That's a big deal. You know, he's speaking what's going to happen after his death, which is pretty funny. Uh, you know, he's the one character in this epilogue who really has, I don't want to say a happy ending, but, you know, a really pronounced ending that he can be proud of. It's very distinguished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Evelyn Nesbitt fades into obscurity. Sorry, Nicole. <laughs> oh. 
sad. Womp, no, womp. Erica said lounge act at the Trump Casino didn't exactly work out the way she ended up. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh. You know, but if she were around today, who knows? She could be like the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Oh, my. <laughs> Let her live. Don't yeah, defame like my her. girl that way. <laughs> Harry Houdini. Okay, here, here's oh, a little God. twist here. We're back to the antics with Edgar. Harry Houdini realizes upon the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that Edgar's warning was the one truly mystical experience of his life. So warn sure. the Duke. Warn the Duke was about the start of World War One. All right. Whatever. Okay, cool. Move on. Moving <laughs> on. Okay, well we go from whatever to some tragedy here, where father is killed when the RMS Lusitania is sunk. And everyone feels bad when they're low key happy. <laughs> Yeah. Right. She, uh... So father is gone, and mother responds by marrying Tata. A year later, well, she, she mourns for a year. For a year. Yeah, and she mother wore black for a year, and then she's like, "Okay, and enough with this." TikTok, whip that black off, put the wedding dress on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she went from black to white. <laughs> and they have a happy mixed family. Yes. Yeah, they, they have a really mixed family because here you have Jewish immigrant. Waspy New Rochelle family raising a black child. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. the complete convergence of everything we saw in the opening number. It yep. is. Yeah. Here and the, the staging of it, you know, I've watched these clips on YouTube, and in the opening number you have the three different groups all standing separately. So they're standing in different parts of the stage. The Jews in one, the New Rochelle group in another, and then the Harlem group in their own group or own part of the stage. Mm-hmm. And here you have all of them converge into one family, which is just seeing that image on stage says so much. So watching the children play, Tata is struck by an idea for a film series centering on a group of children of all different races and classes banding together as one. And again, just like seeing that family together on stage, he wants that to be a vision for the future and the films that he's going to make and the stories he's going to tell. And as they're all standing together on stage, you see what I'm guessing is the ghosts of Sarah and Cole House mm-hmm. overlooking singing Wheels of a Dream as the show comes to an end. You know, their spirit is watching over their son and all who have helped their son. And American continues to assimilate and flourish, even though it took some tragedy in getting there. Lots to digest. Thoughts on the finale of Ragtime. I think of this type of finale where, you know, it's sort of the characters say what they do after the end of the show. It's it's a tricky thing to get right. And I think this threads the needle pretty well. I, and I like that the, the, the song that they reprise for the end is Wheels of a Dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they could have easily done Back to Before, too. You know, there's so many songs about the changing times that you could have added here. But I think Wheels of a Dream is the more hopeful song. Like, back to before what yeah. we've been saying, yeah. it's never going to be the way things exactly. were. Mm-hmm. The wheels of the dream, you know, your wheels obviously go forward, and right. you're talking about the progression here. Yeah. So I think that's the perfect choice, even though there were other options that could have fit it. This is the best one. And especially since it's everyone singing the song that was Cole House and Sarah's, and yeah. now they are no longer with us, so it's their memory too, and it's a really beautiful moment. So this is like Les Mis on the barricade, where mm-hmm. the dead, dead characters are watching over the ones who are still with mm-hmm. us, and you know, that's 
something that could really fall flat when done wrong, but here it yeah. just is so, so, so beautiful. Yeah, Hamilton has a similar ending. Yeah, like you said earlier, it's also that, you know, Hamilton parallel, too, I think is another example of it done well, mm-hmm. where you've got, you know, the characters who have passed during the show watching over those who are still there, kind of carrying on their legacy. Right, and I love Hamilton, I really, really do. But the way that show ends with, a, like, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, it's wonderful, and it's so perfect for that show, but it doesn't leave the same type of reaction that this one does. Like, Wheels of the Dream, you just mm-hmm. want to stand up and, like, applaud and shout and scream, and it's just, like, gets you so moved. Whereas uh, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story is, like, a little more low-key than this one. Yeah. Um, Yet they get the same get at the same themes, just different ways of mm-hmm. how you leave the theater. Well, Hamilton's was more focused on one individual person going forward, whereas yeah. this yeah. showing you what happened to... Um, a bunch of characters who then would continue the legacy of uh, the dead characters. Yeah. I mean, Which hey. It's actually, it's kind of similar. I cry in both, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. They They're both, both effective. Yeah. yeah. They both it hit their mark. One is better than the other. They are their own amazing shows. All right. So <laughs> that is ragtime. All the loose ends are tied up by the end. You know, we have some tragedy. We have some hope. And we know what the next hundred or so years are going to bring for mm-hmm. this country. And... It's not exactly the progress that we all hope for, seeing where we are today. But, you know, so much happened in between that it's worth looking at the dash between then and now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I, absolutely. I think this kind of serves, having been, you know, premiered in the late 90s, about the early part of the century, I think it serves as a nice time capsule mm-hmm. for, like, like, a reflection on the century, the ups and downs, yeah. and how we got to where we were at that point. I think it's also one of those shows that, you know, it came out, like you said, in the 90s and then was revived in, I think, what, 2009? 2009. It was the first yeah, 90s musical to be revived right. to receive a Broadway revival. Yeah. And then they did the, um, the Ragtime concert, I think, what, back in like 2016 or whatever. And I think yeah. the thing about Ragtime is it is one of those shows that it continues to be relevant. And I think that that's part of what kind of, I guess, like packs the punch with it. Totally. Is that you're seeing these things about immigration and police brutality and injustice and, you know, feminism and all this kind of stuff. And the fact that it's set in the early 1900s and came out in the 1990s and all of that. And it still feels, you know, as relevant today in 2018, I think is one of those things that I, you know, whenever I first saw it, I was like, yeah, this is the kind of theater that, you know, I want to be involved in making because it's the kind of thing that really can bring a, a strong message to people. Totally. It also shows the um, potential and the best parts of America because yeah. we have we have the um, white uh, New Rochelle people who kind of begin this, the show in America. They are already uh, established there. And then there's Cole House and Tata, and I think their journeys are kind of parallel because Tata shows the the ideal American dream. You came here from nothing and you built something out of nothing and you succeeded. Whereas Cole House is beaten down by America and it shows the, the the grisly side of this country. Yeah. And just the the, the natural order of mm-hmm. kind of how America goes, the ups and downs of it. Specifically as regards to the color of one's skin. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but I, I think part of the reason it was revived in 2009, 2010 is because, um, you know, not to get too political, but <laughs> that was a time when we were really excited about the potential of our country, the dawning of a new era. It was the end of the Bush era, the beginning of Obama's presidency, and it was yeah. a nice reflection on yeah. how we got to where we are right now, and isn't it exciting what's coming up ahead? 
Whereas I think if it was revived now, which I think it is due for a revival, frankly, absolutely, um, it would be kind of a reflection on how things don't really change, and it's up to us to keep remembering that. Yeah, fortunately and unfortunately, I think we need to be reviving Ragtime every 10 years now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just to keep everyone on their toes. Ragtime is one of those really interesting musicals that occupies a really interesting niche in Broadway history. It is one of only eight musicals to win Best Book and Best Score, but not Best Musical. Yes, and that is a wonderful transition, Dan, because I was about to mm-hmm. talk about the Tony's, uh, we could say, lack of success. <laughs> not only did it not win Best Musical, but the Revival did not win Best Revival either. <laughs> what musical beat it? It didn't win anything. Uh, the Lion King. Oh, okay. None yeah. of us have that. <laughs> yeah, so Ryan no. won four Tony Awards, four Tony Awards in 1998, so just celebrated its 20th anniversary. It won Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Featured actors in a musical for Audrey McDonald. Of course. And best orchestrations. All deserved. You know, Lion King. Who doesn't love the Lion King? The Lion King is great. <laughs> Nothing against the Lion King. But come on. Yeah. Come on. I don't know, guys. As as far as best musical goes, I <laughs> I may have had to give this to the Lion King. I think also that we see the Lion King now, we don't think it's... You know, it's it's good and whatever, but when The Lion King came out, it was really revolutionary in its the, day. You you had right. seen nothing yeah. like that. It, it, even still today, like, we react to it differently, but that's because we've been living with it for 20 years. Even today, there is nothing like it. Yeah. yeah. We're also now post things like War Horse and other things that have used yeah. even, like, that puppetry. Yeah. Um. But I think The Lion King was one of those huge achievements in theater. So I, I really don't yeah. begrudge it. It's the kind of thing where I'm like, God, I wish Ragtime had opened like a year before or a year later. <laughs> right. Where it would have had a chance. Then you would have had Ragtime and Parade. Oh, yeah. Year. Oh, my God. I mean, that's my ideal like Broadway seasons. So. <laughs> well, which is funny because Parade is in the same boat as Ragtime, it won Best Musical and Best Score, but it won Best Book and Best Score, mm-hmm. but lost Best Musical to Fosse. Mm. I have thoughts on that, but... <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other discussion. So, you know, and I guess, you know, Dan is our senior correspondent here. That happened. Gee, way to make me feel old. <laughs> you have a perspective of being wow. a part of that season and seeing the shows that yeah. many of us, you know, frankly, weren't around to see. <laughs> True. I did see all these shows in their original run. I, I didn't see Ragtime, but... In June of 1998, when these Tonys were held, I was two and a half. I was four. Oh, God. So, so. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, you babies. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and I say that because, you know, when I first started going to Broadway around 2005, 2006... Lion King was already almost a decade old and had been so well established, established then that it wasn't seen as anything new and revolutionary at the time. So I will say that The Lion King was the first show that I ever saw. I didn't see it on Broadway. I actually saw it uh, in the West End, which I feel like is rather fitting. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think The Lion King is also one of those things that it was so many people's introduction into theater that it's hard to begrudge it any award that it got. And were you as taken by a Cody? Mm-hmm. I saw it as a kid. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually saw the original cast. Oh, brag, God. brag, brag. Yeah. Um, and yes, it did blow my mind. Uh, so there you have it. You know, that season comes down to those two shows. Uh, you know, really quick. Let's see what else was nominated because we should probably give a shout out to those poor shows too that probably didn't even have a chance. Let's see. It was, uh, okay, so not a terrible year. You have Lion King and Ragtime, which are obviously out front. Sideshow, which has a cult following that was revived a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And the Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, Frank Wildhorn. No, Frank. <laughs> oh, Scarlet Pimpernel. Yep. <laughs> and also the revival of Cabaret took three of the acting awards. That was one of the bigger shows that year, of course, with Alan Cumming and, uh, I was said Michelle Williams. No, and Natasha, Natasha Richardson. Richardson. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And then Direction, I'm sure, went to... Uh, Julie Taymor, first female to win for Best Direction of a Musical. Yeah, but it could have also been Sam Mendes, who really revolutionized what Cabaret was. He had done yeah. it years ago in London. Nicole, was that? At the Donmar Warehouse. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was. And wasn't the revival co-directed with Rob Marshall? He was the choreographer. I don't know if he was co-director. Okay. But, I mean, two, you know about to be humongous forces in film in the late 90s, early yeah. 2000s. Yeah, a year later, he would do the awards. Annie uh, adaptation on ABC. Oh, So, yeah, yeah. he really took off uh, between that and Kissing the Spider Woman on Broadway before launching over to the film side. Yeah. So, you know, it was an interesting season, but, you know, it was always going to be Lion King that took yeah. everything in the <laughs> end, which, you know, if you're on the ground and seeing the shows as they debuted, it makes sense that that's what happened. Yeah. But, you know, Ragtime has certainly had a legacy that endured, and we hope it stays that way for years and years and years to And come. I think if we had a revival, it would have very good uh, chances at getting a best revival, perhaps, uh, Tony, well, this time Well, we just around. saw this year with uh, Once on this Island winning over Carousel, My Fair Lady, and it seems like, even though it didn't win 10 years ago, yeah. or almost 10 years ago, when they had the 2009 revival, given our political and cultural climate now yep if they were to announce tomorrow there's a revival of ragtime of ragtime opening next year i don't see how it would lose that award yeah well mm-hmm. i mean depending on what I else mean, opened but right exactly it's always depending on what else opened but also like the one of the reasons that the revival did not win in 2009 or six or whenever it was yeah the 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 award ceremony was yeah in 2010. The, so the 2009 it Ragtime is a really expensive show to produce. Mm. So by the, like it was barely, it was, I think it played for maybe like a month, two months. Not long. Yeah. It opened in the fall. I remember seeing it cause I had mm-hmm. just started college and then it was closed by the time the Tonys came around. So there was no chance for it winning. Yeah. It would need to open at the right time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would need to open just before the ceremony. It was also a crazy year for revivals. Yeah. Yeah. That was like Lacage and a little night music. Mm-hmm. Binion's Rainbow, I think, was that here too. Promises, Promises wasn't even nominated. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, that was a really good. Well, I don't know if it was a great production, but I like the actors in that one. <laughs> it was fine. So, all right. Well, there we go. We should aspire to have great original productions like Ragtime and great revivals of shows that deserve a second chance. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if there's anything else to cover, you know, I'm drawing a blank of anything else that we could touch on here. So if any of you have any other topics to bring up? I do just want to say that, because uh, I feel like I always want to make a, you know, a stand for, you don't have to go to Broadway or to the West End or whatever to see good theater. I actually was introduced to Ragtime through my school's production. I went to Elon University, 
And I will say that several of the people that I saw in it are now, you know, on Broadway or in national tours. Like I saw uh, Fergie Philippe August, who's now in the Hamilton tour, play Booker T. Washington. And like, it was a phenomenal production of it and got me into the show. So that's like my pitch for go see if there's a school around you that has a great musical theater program or if you've got a good regional theater, you know, go take a chance and see what they're doing because you might discover one of your new favorite musicals. For sure. Or I would even say, listen to the cast album of any show and follow along with the plot on Wikipedia or something. Yep. You know, that's how <laughs> I do it with all these shows that I'm never going to be able to see <laughs> perform live on Broadway or at a regional theater because they're just too expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. You know, follow along, see what the context of the song is and just go with that. You know, it's a really great way to feel like you've seen sh- a show and then go to YouTube and watch the clips. So mm-hmm. it gives you the not nearly as good of an experience as going to the theater, but you know, the next best thing for, mm-hmm. you know, for all the resources that you have. It's the next best theater. <laughs> I was Whoa. waiting for you to do it, Dan. <laughs> That's why. That. The reason I didn't do it was because I knew someone else would. <laughs> So, you know, before we sign off here, uh, before everyone gives their Twitter handles and all that, I think it would be nice if uh, when we go around, just maybe, just like Nicole did, talk about your first time uh, experiencing Ragtime, whether it was an album or seeing it live on stage, when it was, just how it connected with you and why you decided to talk about it on the show tonight. So, uh, Nicole, you already started. Would you like to say anything else about it? No, just that it was honestly the most phenomenal production. It was the first one that I saw because it was my freshman fall at Elon, um, at Elon. And it was just, I mean, I'm really lucky to have gone to a school that produces a lot of really great musical theater performers. But it was also just a really technically stunning thing. Like they actually got a car for it, like a Model T. Um, And it just, it was phenomenal. I sat there like, and I cried buckets at the end. And I was like... I made the right choice and where I picked to go to college. <laughs> and those clips are on YouTube. I've seen little bits from the Elon production, so I highly urge our listeners to check it out. So, wonderful. And Nicole, where can everyone find you on Twitter? I am at Nicole Ackman 16 on Twitter. Great. And Dan? Um, I actually had my first experience with Ragtime um, listening to the original Broadway cast recording. Uh, because a local community theater was doing it, and I had never heard it. And um, so I got the album and listened to it with friends and family, and we were quite blown away by the music, while at the same time thinking, how in the world is this very, very white area of Connecticut ever going to do this show? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but they did and it was they made it, happen. it was they made it happen and you know it was it was really well done. That's great. And where can we find you on Twitter? And you can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on film. Dance and Dan. I always love Dance and Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Cody. So I fell in love with the album in high school when I was kind of, you know, discovering all there was to love about musical theater and I, I, I always avoided it for a long time because I think in the back of my head, I thought it was kind of just a, I mean, the, the, the cast album cover is the Statue of Liberty with the American flag wrapped around it, essentially. And I was not super excited at the prospect of what appeared to be, judging by the cover, a really just kind of excited look at America, very patriotic and kind of um, 
not challenging. So when I finally listened to it, I was so thrilled to find that it was completely the opposite. It gives voice to people who haven't had their voice put on equal uh, levels to other characters in other musical theater uh, shows. And I, I was really impressed by that. Um, I saw the revival in 2009, and it's it very good. It's very good, but I, I think it would be more suited to the times right now, like I said before. Great. And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at CodyMonster91. Also, listen to my horror movie podcast. You can find us at Halloweeners Pod. Fantastic. And this is the time of year for that as we gear up for Halloween. Yes, spooky. All right. And uh, just really quick, my experience with Ragtime. Uh, I think it's pretty funny that I'm the one hosting this episode because my first time listening to Ragtime was actually only earlier this year. What happened was, uh, you know, there's so many shows that I'd wanted to discover and, you know, feel like I knew well that I would never see on Broadway. So just as I'd mentioned before, I went to Wikipedia, read the plot synopsis as I listened to the album and really got an idea of what the show was. And this came at a time earlier this year, I uh, was dealing with the loss of my family and I just needed to turn to some sort of uh, art or culture, whether it was a film, Broadway television show, and Broadway just seemed like a right sort of escape. And I turned to this show, which, you know, wasn't a total escape because we were dealing with some pretty hefty issues, but it just gave me something else to think about for a while, and I will always appreciate Ragtime for that. The fact that it's a great show is just the icing on the cake. So in the months since when I first listened in February, it just has gone toward the top of one of my favorite shows and I so enjoyed taking a deeper dive with uh, my co-hosts here who are as invested in it it's been great and I look forward to many many more years of admiring ragtime you can find me on twitter at mike movie don't forget to subscribe and rate us on itunes i'm sorry apple podcasts it used to be itunes <laughs> you can find our episodes there in addition to soundcloud TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Player FM, Castbox, and we have a new one, Acast. Be sure to check out everything going on on Next Best Picture, including the Patreon site, where you can purchase throwback review episodes and other special content. It has been a pleasure discussing Ragtime over these past two episodes, and it really couldn't have happened without this wonderful team I have. So thank you all. Uh, thank you to the listeners also for tuning in to both these episodes. We have a lot of exciting episodes coming down in the next couple months and we hope you will join them join us for them as they drop until then we will see you all next time Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.